A space for comedy and the tropical testing delay. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Before astronauts travel to places like the Moon or Mars, they train for the isolation and exploration here on Earth. They're called mission analogs and are important for understanding how humans will live for extended periods of time off-planet. A Moon analog is also the scene for a new comedy show from Showtime and A24. Moon Base 8 chronicles a trio of astronauts working to prove to NASA they're worthy of a mission to the Moon. We'll speak with co-creators, writers, and stars of the new show, John C. Riley, Tim Heidecker, and Fred Armisen, about the inspiration and research behind the series. Then, an active tropical storm season in the Gulf has delayed a critical test of SLS, NASA's next moon rocket. The Green Run is a critical test campaign of the core stage booster, culminating with a firing of the rocket's four main engines. We'll speak with Boeing engineer Christine Ramos about the test and what's ahead for NASA's next moonshot. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on America's Space Station. Cap, Rook, and Skip are three NASA astronauts with something to prove in Moonbase 8, a new comedy series from Showtime and A24. Launch sequence beginning in 9, 8, 9, 7, 8, 6, the show pits the three, played by John C. Riley, Tim Heidecker, and Fred Armisen, on an analog moon base with hopes of becoming one of the few chosen astronauts for a real moon mission. Riley, Heidecker, and Armisen not only star in the show, they co-created and wrote the series. I spoke with the three about the project, from the inspiration of the story to the real-life research that went into the show. Guys, thanks for joining us. Well, our Thank pleasure. You. Thank you. Thanks for your interest. Well, first of all, I've got to ask, where did the uh, idea for this show come from? Well, I think the idea, this is Tim Heidecker speaking, the idea came from the desire for the three of us to work together and be in the same room, uh, you know, find a, an idea or a story that we could tell that really puts us in a place where we have to kill time and there's a lot of, a lot of waiting around and from that, it, it, there was only a f- kind of a few different ways that could go. John can take over the story from here. Yeah, I, I, we were, Fred and I have been t- talking for years, actually, about wanting to do something together. Uh, and Tim and I have worked together. And then Fred and Tim worked together. And when that happened, we realized, well, the three of us should do something. And I remember having this idea for a movie, actually. I thought it would make a good horror movie about this Antarctica base I read about it in National Geographic about how they spend 80 nights of darkness together when the sun is not happening down there. And I thought, well, that is like what they described in the National Geographic article was how things get really crazy on the base when you spend that much time alone with a group of people uh, that weird things happen. And I thought the initial idea was that it would make a great horror movie, but then I pitched mm-hmm. it to these guys and they're like, no, that would be a, a brilliant comedy concept. Uh-huh. And then we realized once we, once we started doing research, we realized that like, there are many of these real programs out there in Utah and Hawaii and elsewhere. Uh, so we thought, wow, perfect. Uh-huh. It's already, we already have like, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can just mimic these bases that already exist and then inject our brand of comedy within it. Would you call yourselves space nerds before this process? 
Absolutely. I, I, speaking for myself, I've always loved space movies, space television shows, and, and the real space program itself I find incredibly inspiring and noble and ambitious and science and knowledge-based, you know, rather than kind of like our team wins, even mm. though in the 60s that was a big part of the space program, beating the Russians. But but now at this point, like uh, the idea of of bettering humanity by understanding the universe is something I think we can all get behind. Mm-hmm. And also, it's also the aesthetics of it are just great. Going back to any time, it always looks cool. Mm-hmm. Any of those control rooms, the the space suits, the, sh- the ships, it's always, always great. It's always, uh, it, that always feels timeless, the, the look of it. Mm-hmm. I, you kind of took a risk because, I mean, I've been covering space for five years now, six years now, and like space isn't very funny. Um, I'm not sure why you all thought it would be good to, to kind of do a comedy show that dealt with NASA and these astronauts. I mean, that was a big risk. Well, well it's funny because you're right. Space isn't especially funny because if you make a mistake in space, things get so dangerous so fast. But what we had going for us in this case was it's a simulation of space. They're actually not on the moon. They're pre- pre- pretending to be on the moon which has a kind of a childlike playful quality already that you're pretending you're out in the desert, picking up rocks and pretending that they're moon rocks. There's already something kind of funny about that, even though it's necessary and, and, and it's science-based and it's what we have to do in order to go to these places. There was something funny about grown men, you know, acting like they're on the moon together. It's like mm-hmm. civil war reenactors or something, yeah. so, something, you know, pure about it, but also sort of silly too. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it, it was silly, but it's also, I mean, there were some pretty, you know, heavy themes in the show. You're, you're dealing with um, isolation, uh, some of the, the tech issues that you'd have in, in space, like resource management, budget cuts. Um, like how much of the real world uh, did you research to put into this show? I mean, it was it was really timely and, and really newsy. Well, we went to JPL. Yeah, yeah. So, so what, what we did to kind of research was we visited SpaceX in Hawthorne and we visited JPL. And what struck us was, you know, they're both very vital places on the cutting edge of space and space travel and space technology. And you couldn't, you couldn't have, I couldn't have imagined two different, more different vibes. You know, when we went to JPL, it was this very deliberate, academic, quiet place with, uh, you know, a lot of, scholarly sort of people a number of older people working there um they were doing exciting things like building the new rover and all that but it had this kind of sleepy academic quality like like a university campus or something and then we went to spacex and it was like literally like the scene at the end of the first star wars where they're scrambling the x-wing fighters <laughs> there's all these young people just racing around this place literally building spaceships in front of you almost no older people there for some reason. It seemed like a very um, ambitious and young group of people. So, you know, both places totally valid in what they were doing. But in a way, you know, was what was explained to us is funny because even though JPL is called the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, they're not doing propulsion or jets anymore at JPL. <laughs> they're, they're doing the, you know, stuff like <laughs> rovers and the more 
you know, the satellite. Yeah, the, the equipment tracking. that that goes up there, not the equipment that takes stuff up there. Whereas SpaceX are actually building the propulsion devices. So maybe there's a an inherent difference between those kind of programs. But uh, it was it was pretty funny to us actually the the, the different energy at the, between the two places. I remember asking a question at JPL and it kind of broke my brain because it was I, I was just sort of thinking, what is the uh, object, you know, what's the ultimate object of what you're doing here? What are you guys trying to get to? And they're like, science, like, you know, the, to discover, you know, to learn more about the, the universe. And that's it. Like, that's the, the prime directive. And it was kind of inspiring. That's not, you know, motivated on, on, uh, you know, finding, you know Profit. minerals yeah it's not it's not like a capitalist necessarily uh objective it's just pure science and they take it real seriously and there's a part of our show that i think is isn't is not we're not here to make fun of that we're here to you know use that to play against guys who probably don't belong in that environment uh-huh. yeah we make fun of our failure to meet the goals of nasa you know not the goals of nasa itself Mm-hmm. We we tend to put astronauts on a pedestal, right? They're they're the smartest, the brightest, strongest, most successful human beings. But the one thing that I took away from watching the show is that you know they're they're real people. And uh, Fred, maybe I'll throw this question to you: How much went into just exploring the internal struggles that that you know these characters have, and and that all astronauts probably go through? Well, it's you know that there's the assumption that that is what's going on. Um, even I feel like we don't really get to see a lot of that. Um, but we, there was the movie alien kind of, um, had a little bit of that with some of the, um, the characters there where, you know, they seemed so human. So there was an element of that, of, of obviously these people have their flaws and their, their personalities. So we kind of just did it. We, we, just kind of like hoped that uh, the humanity of these people, of our characters um, was just evident as we were shooting it. Um, I also think that the way that we are, the three of us as people was kind of like, I, we, we share a lot of the traits to the characters too, just the way that we talk, the way that we are. So I think some of that hopefully um, bled through a little bit. There's a handful of new shows out there um, dealing with space. You know, Netflix has a few. Um, the Expanse is continuing on Amazon. Um, what do you think the, the, the you know, interest in, in these space shows is these days? Is it something going on in the real world? Has it always been there? Like, why now? I think it's always been there. And we just, there's more platforms for these kind of things to be produced, first of all. And I think deep in our sub- subconscious and maybe even more more in a conscious way these days, some part of us feels like the earth might not be the most dependable home base for the long-term future. So I think people are starting to think about like, well, what do we do if we, if global warming and the climate crisis really does come to the awful conclusion we're predicting, then what do we do? You know, so I think there's that. I, I also think there's something a little not political about it. It's this one weird area where everyone I think I mean, you know, I might be wrong about this, but most people seem to be on the same page about it. Just mm-hmm. simply that space exploration is great yeah. and interesting. 
Mm-hmm. I, I, I feel remember like... watching when we were writing the show, um, we the the first uh, the SpaceX rocket that land that came back and landed. But oh I forget what that was called, the Falcon. That was incredible. I remember Great it felt point. like, oh, cool. this watching it got very emotional. I was like, this is what it felt like when my parents got to see some of those first, you know, the Apollo, those giant uh, Saturn rockets and, you know, the real like space, you know, space travel kind of has been a little not as sexy as it had been in the 60s, 50s and 60s. And that moment was was like, whoa, this is like science fiction I'm watching here. I can't believe these things are are doing this and it's working. You know, I think you point out something interesting too in saying that, you know, astronauts have always been portrayed as these uber men and women, you know, these utterly qualified, multidisciplinary, you know, incredible people. And I think that's what makes our show unique is that we actually are not that. Our three characters are people that are just struggling to be capable at the basic things that they need to know, which is very relatable. You know, they're still in the space program. They're still trying to meet the challenges of the space program. But as an outsider, if you're not in the space program, you can watch that and think like, well, that's how I feel on my first day of work or my first day of school. Or, you know, when I was embarking on something I didn't know how to do, I think there's a relatability to it. That's refreshing to me. Mm-hmm. And before I let you guys go, I've got to ask, um, what was with the canned bagels? Is that an actual thing? <laughs> <laughs> the food was one of the funniest things we got to interact with. Because we made a few suggestions in the writing, but then the prop department would just go off and we'd show up on set and we'd discover these things like yeah. beef style stew. Like what? Like, I mean, who thought of the bagels in a can? I don't know. It just seemed like a food you would not want to eat out of a can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if it's a NASA thing, I think I've got a story I have to work on. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, we didn't want to do, you know, from a comedy writing place, you know, you don't want to go with what everyone's expecting, which is, you know, frozen or the dried ice cream or the tang, you know, you just got to push it a little bit into a, silly place mm-hmm. uh-huh. well, we've been speaking with tim heidecker fred armison and john c Riley. they're the creators writers and stars of the new showtime series Moonbase eight thank you all for speaking with us thank you thanks the series premiere airs on showtime sunday november 8th still to come a busy tropical storm season has delayed the testing of nasa's next moon rocket what's ahead for sls are we there yet is back in a minute You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. An active tropical storm season in the Gulf has delayed a critical test of SLS, NASA's next moon rocket. The Green Run is a critical test campaign of the core stage booster, culminating with a firing of the rocket's four main engines. We're joined by Boeing engineer Christine Ramos to bring us up to speed on the test and what's ahead for NASA's next moonshot. Christine, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for inviting me. Well, first of all, can you just give us kind of a broad overview of the Green Run? Um, What is this test campaign? So Green Run is a series of tests that really validate um, our design and build of course stage one. We call it green because the majority of the hardware on our vehicle is untested, a.k.a. green. Uh, And it will be tested for the first time in this integrated configuration. The vehicle is staged at the BT stand out at Stennis, um, where it has heritage um, history supporting Saturn shuttle, uh, shuttle Delta IV. And it's been modified for our vehicle um, to undergo testing such as avionics, uh, modal, safing, thrust vector control, hydraulics, 
and our final final validation, which is our static hot fire, where we will turn on all the avionics. We'll load about 700,000 pounds of cryogenic propellant, and we'll fire all four RS-25 engines for about eight minutes. And a lot of this will really provide data and um, meet a lot of our test objectives to qualify us and certify us to fly. I mean, it sounds kind of obvious. Um, you mentioned it's a green run because it's brand new. Um, is that the only reason why a test like this is important is to just kind of work out all the kinks and make sure everything works? I mean, what's what's kind of the overall goal of, of a green run? Well, a lot of the information gains will not only qualify us, but it really does become the foundation for our future vehicles, if you think about it. It will help us design, redesign, and modify and tweak for various different missions. Um, if, you know, as you know, this program isn't just going to the moon, it's going to go to deep space, it's going to go to Mars. So any information that we gained from Green Run, as far as test firing all four engines, the stage avionics, our propellant fill-up, all that information gained will really help us with our design and redesign for future missions. Now, if anybody follows me on Twitter, they know I love watching these like these engine tests because they're just they're so cool and and they look neat and you really can kind of feel what this vehicle is going to look like and and do on on launch day. But for someone like you, an engineer, um, what are some of the things that you are going to be looking at during these? Because I'm sure it's not just because you want to see how it looks, right? You're actually looking at specific things on on the vehicle, right? Um, we're, we're looking at all kinds of things, just mainly how it reacts, um, how it works. Uh, our thermal protection system is also a big thing. And also how the public reacts to it is another major thing. You know, it does give us a sense of pride. Uh, you know, we've been working on this for so long. A lot of us have been desensitized from looking at 2D models and uh, 3D models. So it's nice to see a, a vehicle integrated in what we would consider alive, uh, generating more inspiration. And also for the public, so they can actually feel and hear and envision what those vehicles are capable of doing. So um, there's a lot we're looking at technically, but um, just amongst ourselves, you know, we're really looking for for our audience to be really inspired by what we're doing. And, and where will you be for, for this test? I will actually be far away. Um, I am not on console. Uh, the closest that anyone will be will probably be at our TCC, which is our test control op um, control center, where a lot of our console operator operators will be sitting monitoring the health of our vehicle and where um, a lot of, for example, our computer will be working for stage controller, um, actually sending up commands. I will actually be out far away watching uh, just with the rest of the engineers and support group um, behind a fence, maybe. I'm not sure yet. They haven't decided where they're going to put us, but we'll be out watching. Um, for a lot of us, it's, it's our first time. For me, this is bringing, bringing back a lot of nostalgia. Uh, actually putting the vehicle back into the test stand reminded me a lot of shuttle being on a launch pad. And just this hot fire is just going to bring back a lot of memories of, of launch. So we're pretty excited. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of challenges when it comes to uh, a new vehicle and for a vehicle of this size and to get on this test stand, but also uh, weather has not been kind to you at all there at the test site. Um, it's just been pummeled no. by, uh, by tropical storms there in the Gulf. 
kind of walk me through like how has that impacted your job and and what are kind of the things that you have to do to kind of you know button this vehicle up when there's you know storms threatening and it seems like you know every few weeks that is actually pretty funny because you know I was really we're really talking about it especially with data coming um, we didn't anticipate such an active season this year. You know, we did have it in our schedule that we might incur some uh, severe weather, but not four to five major named storms com- coming down to do some possible impacts. So a lot of coordination needs to happen, especially with those traveling. Um, for example, a lot of people on console are from all over the country, so we have to ensure their travel is, you know, being coordinated and they're, they're staying home or, or leaving. And for our vehicle, we really need to ensure, you know, a lot of the scaffolding is done, we're securing loose items, we're mitigating any water intrusion in any open areas, and coordinating a lot of our TPS efforts because they do kick us out of our environments when we're applying or doing any repairs. So there's a lot, and our production teams and our engineers have gotten pretty proficient in actually um, doing a lot of this work just because of how many times we you know, take it down, put it back up, bunker down, and leave. It does shut us all down, but um, it has been very interesting this this season, this year, just because of all the hurricanes. Christine, you kind of touched upon this um, in an earlier response, but the Green Run will kind of look through or, or look at, you know, kind of launch day operations, right, fueling and, and firing and, you know, all of that stuff. Can you, can you kind of tell me, like, when does the green run start and, and how long of a process is this? Um, kind of walk me through that. So um, for green run, uh, how it starts, right after we start our preps and everything has been secured and we evacuate the stands, really everything goes to our PCC and our ground control computer, which is our stage controller. First, our avionics will turn on and then we'll start pressurizing our tanks. Uh, once that's pressurized, we'll start our propellant loading, and about T minus 10, we'll initiate our count sequence. Um, from there, our, we'll switch from our internal batteries at around T minus 90 seconds, and then our stage controller will actually start our main engine start. So um, it'll start uh, sending out that command, and we will fire all engines for about eight minutes, and then do engine cutoff, which our stage controller also do, does. Um, throughout this whole time, though, it is collecting a lot of data, so um, I don't think there's a certain time when it really starts and ends. It's throughout the whole entire, um, I guess, test, it's actually running. And then, assuming all goes well um, for the green run and, and the hot fire, um, what's the next step? So after you get everything you know, safe and buttoned down, how, how does the rocket get certified and then get ready to be shipped here uh, to Florida? Well, post-pot fire, we will allow the vehicle to rest and kind of dry out because, you know, there's a lot of water that's pumping through it uh, during the test. But um, before we go out and do our inspections, um, our production and engineering team will actually really assess it. Um, our test teams will be collecting a lot of our data. And then after um, an assessment and identifying any anomalies or repairs, um, we'll start um, refurbishments and also our avionics checkouts. Uh, we anticipate a lot of the uh, refurbishment will be TPS, and if you remember Booster, it was similar. It was cork, hypalon, foam materials that will be repaired. Um, but we will be doing that right before we ship. And once we're done and we put it on the barge, it'll go off to KSC, where it will integrate with the remaining elements for flight. 
Christine, you've worked on uh, the space shuttle program, uh, various aspects of that, and now and now you're working on uh, the SLS. Um, tell me a little bit about what it's like building a vehicle that you know with shuttle took folks into space, and and with SLS will eventually take humans to deep space. Uh, what's it like having a hand in in that mission? So I have been very privileged to be working many different phases of a vehicle, um, a developing program, a sustaining program, a, tra- a program that was transitioning. Um, and, and it's very, very humbling to actually be in a developing program, as whereas in shuttle, you know, uh, we were pretty much sustaining. Uh, a lot of the infrastructure has already been built up, so a lot of the processes established. So uh, it's a big learning curve for a lot of us. Uh, who have not been in the industry and who's not worked, you know, on, on spacecraft. Um, we do have really, really great people and really great suppliers and contractors who are just so experienced and they bring so much to the table. And we've been, you know, re- really utilizing that relationship just as much as um, everyone coming from other programs who are very innovative in bringing lean processes with them. So it's been interesting. It's um you know, I enjoy working in so many different organizations just because I like to see how all the organizations intertwine and integrate to make the mission and vehicle successful. And in the stage of the game where we're developing a program, um, it's really interesting just watching how everything comes together, just knowing what we've done in other programs and how we're doing it here. So it's been very exciting, uh, overwhelming, but definitely exciting and humbling. Mm-hmm. You said something interesting when we were talking about uh, the things that you're looking for uh, for this hot fire test. And one of the things that you said that was important about the Green Run is public interest. Um, You know, how important is that to a campaign like this or a mission like this to have, you know, the public behind you and the public excited about such a large uh, project and undertaking like, like SLS and Artemis? You know, I don't think people really understand how enormous this is and how powerful this is. We're so used to seeing animation. We're so used to, you know, seeing a static piece of hardware. But when they see Hot Fire, they'll actually feel it. You know, they'll actually hear it. And and that can really invoke a lot of inspiration, you know, a lot of creativity of, of what we can do for the future. You know, a lot of these missions that we have for the future in, in this program is for deep space. We need a lot of creative people, you know, to make that happen, to design that. And I'm hoping that when they see, you know, Hot Fire, they'll be immediately inspired to be like, you know what, I can build Gateway. I can put something on that vehicle that can go into deep space because I know how powerful it is, how complex it is, uh, what it can do. So that's why it's very important that the public sees this. You know, a lot of people don't see it right now. They're just, you know, seeing cartoons or, you know, seeing uh, animation. And and that's not enough. That's not enough to really inspire someone to get on that creative path. Well, that sounds good. Well, we've been speaking with a very busy Boeing engineer, (laughs) Christine Ramos. Christine, thank you so much for speaking with us. Um, Thank you for having me. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Stay connected online. Visit WMFE.org slash space or give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram. We're at A-W-T-Y space. Are We There Yet space? Get it. On Facebook, just search for Are We There Yet podcast or shoot me an email. Are We There Yet at WMFE.org. 
Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. The show's intern is Nelly Ontiveros. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>